Today's passage is from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. It would be wrong of us to look at... um serial killer or a pedophile or a drug dealer, excuse me, it wouldn't be wrong, wouldn't be wrong for us to look at any of those people and uh, say to ourselves, well, I've got some shortcomings, but I'm not guilty of doing uh, the worst outward sins like, like they are. And if you said that, you'd be right. Wouldn't be wrong to look at someone who is outwardly um, committing the most egregious sins that we know of, and to determine um, that outwardly, at least, you're not as bad of a sinner as that person. Um, And in Scripture, some sins are certainly worse than others. All sin is unrighteousness, but some things are said to be hated by God. Proverbs 6 tells us that Six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that are quick to run to mischief, a false witness, and he that sows discord among the brothers. Simply put, not all sins are created equal, and not all sinners are equally sinful. Now, one of the doctrines we hold to is called the doctrine of total depravity, which doesn't say that people are as bad as they could be, but that sin's effect on the human heart is total in the sense that there isn't any part of us which is not touched by our fallen nature. And the potential for any sin lies in each of us. Um, Nevertheless, if we're not careful, we can separate ourselves from those we think are really bad. So we know that uh, I have, you know, I may have personal inward sins that I struggle with, um, 
but someone may be, you know, um, committing the most heinous sins. And I can say in some sense, well, uh, I'm not doing the worst sins like this person. I'm not committing or I'm not guilty of the worst sins like this person may be. But where that gets tricky is uh, exalting myself or exalting ourselves above someone who is outwardly more sinful than us. We can judge others that we think are worse than us and get into this little habit and game that we play where we consider ourselves righteous in relationship to people we think are worse than we are. And we see this attitude all the time when people say things like, well, if there's a God, why does he allow evil? Right? It may seem like a reasonable question, but it's actually incredibly prideful and arrogant and ignorant. Uh, evil is not some nebulous entity, but of course is perpetrated by human beings. So if we say, well, why does God allow evil? What we're really saying is, why does God permit human beings to live? Because of course all evil is perpetuated and committed by us, people by human beings. If God wiped out evil, he'd be wiping out humanity. And you can guarantee that uh, his categories of what evil um, is, is far more broad than ours. We tend to categorize evil as anything other than us, or anything we think is worse than us. So when when we say, why does God allow evil, we're often saying, Why does God permit people who I think are worse than me to exist? In reality, God's standard of holiness, of course, is his perfect moral righteousness. And everyone, the big sinner and the little sinner, falls short of that standard. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now we're told in our passage this morning the story of Jesus, a Pharisee named Simon, and a woman, we're not given her name, but we're simply told that she is a woman of the city who is a sinner. And in verse 36, Jesus is invited to dine with this Pharisee. Now, in our late modern culture, we have rules for entertaining, right? When you know someone is coming over for dinner, you hover at the door. I know I do. Uh, I hate being late, and I would hate for someone to show up on time and me not be there at the door. So about two minutes till, I'm peeking out the window. And if you have dinner at my house, the way it should work, hopefully, because, well, my doorbell's broken, uh, as you approach the door, I usually just open the door right up. That's a part of... Uh, kind of our culture and custom of hospitality. You're waiting for someone. You're not upstairs with your headphones in playing, you know, SEAL Team 6 on the PlayStation because you've got guests coming to the door. Um, When they come in, your guests, you take off their coat if it's cold outside. You offer them something refreshing to drink, a comfortable place to sit. You don't make them cook their own food or do their own dishes. There are all these things that we do that we know is part and parcel of what it means to show people kindness and welcome and hospitality in our culture. 
And if you violate some of those things, you are likely not to have those people back over, or I should say they probably don't, won't want to come back over. Um, and in first century Palestine, there were also cultural norms for receiving guests. It says that the Pharisee invites Jesus to eat with him, and Jesus went into the house. Jesus accepted his invitation, and he reclined at table. Now, I was going to have a picture up here of what that looks like, but I'll just describe it, and you can use your imagination. In the first century, tables were not high like they are now, where we sit in big wooden chairs. Tables were very close to the ground, um, maybe elevated of just a few inches. In fact, sometimes um, it was just a cloth or a spread laid out on the floor, and people lie down on pillows, and their torso or an elbow would be leaning into the meal, usually in the shape of a U, and their feet would be away from them. So they reclined at table. That's what that means. And so Jesus comes in to Simon the Pharisee's house, and he is reclining at table. Um, The host would also leave the door open, because in first century uh, Jewish culture, If you had a guest over and you wanted to honor that person, the door was left open so that other people, neighbors and friends, could come in and stop in and say hello. And so people that you knew well or didn't know very well were permitted to come in. And especially in a scenario like this, where Simon's a Pharisee and he invites a known teacher like Jesus, you could expect that there would be some deep, theological discussion around the table. And so people likely would come in and they'd sit up against the wall and they would listen in on the conversation over this banquet with this honored guest. And Jesus being a teacher, Simon no doubt would have been expecting him to impart rabbinic wisdom. And at the very least, Simon was curious to prove that Jesus was a prophet Now, what's important here for us to see is that Jesus makes himself available to people from all types of backgrounds. So yes, he dines and has meals with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, but he is also open to reaching the Pharisees. They invite him, and he accepts their invitation. The Pharisees need to hear the wisdom and salvation of God just like anyone else. Jesus is a equal opportunity savior, if you will. And up until this point in the narrative, we've seen that Jesus goes through town to town, healing crowds and multitudes, and in Scripture, because we have a summary of, all, of most of these events, we may hear the name of a person or a description of a person, but what we often don't hear about are the multitudes of people who are anonymous who see Jesus' miraculous deeds and believe in him and repent of their sins and are saved and forgiven just by their faith from looking and seeing and observing what he's doing and who he is and the power of God on him. And the reason I mention that is because in verse 37, we're told that one of these people, who no doubt were in the crowd, during Jesus' different miracles, who has believed on him, finds out that Jesus is in Simon's house. 
And verse 37 says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. This woman, no doubt, is one of the anonymous individuals in one of the crowds who had an encounter with Jesus in his ministry of repentance and reconciliation. And she had undergone some type of transformation of the heart, which apparently had not at this point outpaced her reputation as a woman of ill repute. Because she's described in this passage as a woman of the city who was a sinner. So think about it this way. Uh, People know you before you've come to Christ for a certain behavior, a certain part of your character. You know, uh, Billy the Thief, or, you know, uh, Johnny the Crook, or, you know, know, uh, Mary the Scoundrel, or something like that, you know. But you've come to Christ, but not everyone knows that Jesus has done a, a work of salvation in your heart, and you've changed And so when people hear about you, they still call you by that moniker, that name, or they still think about you uh, in in identification with that sin you're known for. And it calls her here a woman uh, of the city who was a sinner, which is probably a discreet way of saying she was a prostitute. I'll just let that sink in for a moment. A prostitute. She's a prostitute. She's known for being a prostitute. And this is how Luke's statement has traditionally been interpreted for good and for good reason. And we also have euphemisms for prostitutes today. In that day, it was a woman of the city who was a sinner. In our day, we might say something like streetwalker or working girl. They're all types of words that our culture might use to describe someone who does that for a living. But that was what she was known by. A woman of the city who's a sinner, a prostitute. Now, when Jesus sat down to eat, um, his sandals would have been removed from his dusty feet. And this part of the Mediterranean was dry and hot, and and, um, you walked everywhere you went. In fact, we're told in another place that Jesus walked 70 miles to be baptized of John. There were no metro links, no rapid transit, no subways. You didn't hitch a ride with Uber. If you went somewhere, you had to walk, and it was usually hot and dry and arid and dusty. And I know, because I'm into hiking, after a few hours, your feet swell. And when I go backpacking, if we're in the mountains and it's hot, especially in the summer, and we pass a stream, I'll take my boots and socks off, and I'll drop my feet in the stream to cool them off. And yeah, I feel bad for whoever's downstream a mile or two, but it's what you got to do because it's just hot. And in those days, you would take your shoes off, and Jesus is lying at table reclining with his host, and his sandals are removed from his feet. And she has in her possession an alabaster box with ointment. Now, an alabaster box is... Um, a stone or um, it was a box-shaped, stone-shaped glass that preserved the perfume's quality. 
And it was not uncommon for women to carry a vial of fragrance around their neck. So it might be a small little box, it might be large, and sometimes it was shaped in a bottle and it was sealed at the top. And if you wanted to access it, you broke the neck off of this little uh, container. Now you're probably asking yourself, what is she doing there, right? She has a bad reputation. This is a Pharisee's home. Jesus is a holy man. Yes, maybe she had some type of faith encounter with Jesus from a distance, but it would seem pretty bold for a woman known to be a prostitute to walk into a place where not only Jesus is, but a Pharisee is. Pharisees were always separating themselves from anyone who was considered to be unclean. Now, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I grew up in Hollywood, actually, and I ran into celebrities all the time. It was just a part of the culture, and we would see celebrities at the restaurant or the gym or the grocery store, and it, it just got to the point where you just, it wasn't that big of a deal. And they often thought it was a bigger deal than you did. You know, they'd look at you like, are you going to ask me for an you know, autograph? And most of the time, I just, you're not all that. But there were a couple times where... Um, I was starstruck. I ran into some real legends, and I was starstruck. And you've seen it before when people, you know, someone comes on the red carpet, especially some of the teeny bopper bands, and they can't control their emotions, and they're just screaming and crying and weeping. And you see it, and you think to yourself, calm down, it's not that serious. But to them, they, they just can't control it. Well, this woman learns that Jesus is in town, and her reputation notwithstanding, enters, um, of all places, the house of this Pharisee, um, just so she can see Jesus, who by now has somewhat of a celebrity status in the region. But for her, it's more than a giddy excitement over someone who's become kind of famous, This is the man who has showed her that her sins, although they were a lot worse than other people's, her sins weren't too bad to be forgiven. This is the one, this is the person who preached the forgiveness and salvation and kingdom of God where she found forgiveness and salvation. And verse 38 says, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. It says she kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And if you can imagine the scene, Jesus is reclining, his feet are behind him, he's talking with other people. She's standing behind him, so overcome with emotion that the tears aren't just running down her cheeks, but they're dripping off of her face landing on his dusty, dirty, hot feet. And the scene probably would have been really awkward, really uncomfortable, and in many ways, really inappropriate. And she drops to her knees, and she lets her hair down to wipe his feet, clean his feet, And now it's getting really, really awkward. 
if you are someone in the room. Because you know who she is, you know her reputation, and besides, this isn't her husband, it's weird. And the people of the town know her to be a sinner. But her heart, her heart has found its home in the love and embrace of God's forgiveness, and she simply can't contain her emotion and doesn't care what anyone in the room thinks about her. That's what happens when you're overcome with excitement for somebody. You know, a minute ago I was talking about running to a celebrity. You don't care if you look silly. You are so overcome with, you know, um, adulation, you, you just, it doesn't matter at that point. And that's where she is. She doesn't care. It's risky, actually, what she's doing. She's taking a huge risk putting herself out there, but Jesus is such that what he's done for her makes any criticism that might pop up as a result of this irrelevant. And I wonder if that's how we feel about Jesus, because that's how we should feel about Jesus. We should have such a picture for the glory of Christ and what he's done in us and is doing in us, if he is indeed doing something in us, that any ridicule for proclaiming his name and declaring Christ as Lord is irrelevant to us because of the glory and power and importance of who he is, the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. She doesn't care. She doesn't care what anybody thinks about her. She has had an encounter with Christ that makes all other cultural taboos or norms pale in comparison. They are irrelevant. At this moment, she has figured out that knowing Christ is more important than the opinions and disdain and ridicule of the community. And in verse 39, we're told that when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In other words, I thought this guy may be a prophet, but no, there's no way. There's no way he can be a prophet because he wouldn't allow this woman to touch him this way. Simon interprets her actions inappropriately. In fact, on the surface, her actions seem quite erotic, if I can put it that way. A woman on her wedding night would put her hair up in a bun and cover herself and only let her hair down in her husband's, husband's presence. So in first century Jewish culture, for a woman to let her hair down was the same as going topless in public. It was a scandal. And besides that, touching a man's feet was quite sensual. If you remember the story in the book of Ruth, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, tells her that Boaz may be a, a potential husband, a kinsman redeemer, and Naomi tells her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to go and find where Boaz is lying down and uncover his feet. 
There was something sensual about that. In fact, some commentators think that it's a euphemism for seduction. Either way, what she's doing is completely inappropriate from the casual observer. And all of this leads Simon to doubt who Jesus is because, of course, a prophet wouldn't allow any of this to happen. But Jesus interprets her actions differently. Verse 40, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher, which is not a very polite way. In fact, in the original language, he says, speak on, which is cordial but not reverent. And Jesus responds and says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, 50 denarii is about two months of pay. 500 denarii is almost two years of pay. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, Jesus, that is, said to Simon, you have judged rightly. Her actions on the surface are inappropriate, but the motivation behind them makes all the difference in the world. And Jesus takes it up a notch by showing not only that her actions are the result of gratitude and thanksgiving, but, and get this, she has actually far exceeded Simon in hospitality. What Jesus' words are, not just a parable, they're a rebuke. In fact, as you read through the Gospels, one of the things you notice is that when Jesus has these encounters, these private encounters with Pharisees, who often will call him teacher, that's kind of the, the way they address Jesus as teacher, there's always a rebuke. You know, there's always something that Jesus has to correct in their thinking. And Jesus has just kind of dropped the bomb on Simon. Not only are the, is this woman's actions not inappropriate, but she has actually been far more hos hospitable and kind to me than you have. Then turning toward the woman in verse 44, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now the tension is kicked up to a fever pitch. Do you see this woman? When I entered your house, Simon, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, which is Jesus' way of saying, I know you think she's a greater sinner than you, and she is. You're right. She's a worse sinner than you are. But what I'm telling you, Simon, is her sins are forgiven. Her great sins. She's a 500 sinner. You're a 50 sinner. But her sins have been forgiven. And what you're looking at, Simon, is the gratitude and thanksgiving from someone who has been forgiven much. And in some way, Jesus is saying, you can't understand it. 
You don't know what you're looking at because you don't have that kind of gratitude. This woman loves much because she's been forgiven much. Verse 47, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were there at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Right? Because God only is the one who forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus is essentially saying, to sum it all up, you judge her violation of cultural norms, but you're the one who has violated the customs of hospitality. All the things that one would do to show respect for an honored guest, Simon ignores. And you don't pick that up when you first read the passage. You think, oh, that's nice. He invites Jesus in for a banquet. But he doesn't actually show Jesus the respect that a prophet would deserve. And the contrast could not be more acute. Simon is a member of the religious elite, a Pharisee with access to the temple and its hierarchy. And this woman is at the bottom of the social strata despised by many, and relegated to a life of shame. Marginalized as an outcast, unredeemable. But, and you can't miss this, but she has equal access to God's forgiveness and grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Which is to say that the religious structure for all its complexities of Second Temple Judaism, with all of its sacrificial system and all of its religious stratification, could not offer this estranged woman, this marginalized member of society, what Jesus, in his person, could offer. He offered her the forgiveness that she could not access through all of the religious tapestry and scaffolding that existed. And that's amazing. In the person of Jesus... He himself, personally, dusty feet and all, a Mediterranean peasant from one of the the areas in Israel with the worst reputation. In fact, some said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And in this person, she has found redemption and reconciliation with God. And if you are a woman and you saw and heard this, of this event, the impact would have been powerful, right? Because remember, the collective consciousness of Jewish people at that time remembered that it was Eve, not Adam, who sinned first. It was Eve who ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it was a woman who sinned first. But all of that must yield to the fact that in Jesus' eyes, Women are not second-class citizens. Women bear God's image and are the object of his all-encompassing ministry, no less than men. Yes, familial and ecclesiastical hierarchies exist. That's true, still, still true. But covenantally, there is no difference between male and female. And that's radical. Now, the takeaway 
of this, of all of this, is this. We think of one who sins outwardly is in danger of judgment, which is true. But one thing a prostitute or a tax collector or someone known for being incredibly sinful is not in danger of is finding their life so fulfilling that they can't turn to God, whereas the proud and self-righteous are in that danger. If that wasn't clear enough, what, what I meant to say is, yeah, they're in danger of judgment, but they're not in danger of thinking they've got it all together. Usually incredibly sinful people, regardless of any type of facade they project to the culture, there's a deep conviction and shame that they feel that nothing can bury. This is why the gospel needs to be preached and proclaimed everywhere and at all times because there are people that God has been working on through the conviction of the Holy Spirit who are just waiting to hear the good news about Jesus. And this is why this tension between someone who's a little sinner versus the person who's a big sinner, Jesus says to the religious leaders, this is why he says to religious leaders in Matthew 21, 31, I tell you the truth that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. It's not because God loves really sinful people more than he loves, you know, Little sinful people, if I can put it that way, slightly sinful people, it's because the person who's sinning little does not think they need forgiveness. The person who is sinning a lot often is under the weight and burden of a heavy load of conviction because of their sins. 50 sinner, 500 sinner, all fall short of the glory of God. All need forgiveness. All need God's grace. You may have heard of uh, Nabil Qureshi. Um, he's the author of a book and several books, a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And Nabil was one of the descendants of the Qureshi clan. And it was the tribe that Muhammad, Islam's prophet, came from. And he writes... Nabil Qureshi writes, Our family stood sentinel over the Islamic tradition. The words of my ancestors passed down to me were more than ritual. By age five, I had recited the entire Quran in Arabic and memorized the last seven chapters. By age 15, I had committed the last 15 chapters of the Quran to memory in both English and Arabic, and every day I recited countless prayers in Arabic. By middle school, I had learned how to challenge Christians whose theology I could break down just by asking a few questions. If I really wanted to throw Christians for a loop, I would ask them to explain the Trinity. They would usually respond, it's a mystery, and in my heart, I mocked them for their ignorance. As a freshman at Old Dominion University, in university, I was befriended by a sophomore, a devout Christian, who unashamedly read his Bible and defended the claims of Christ gracefully. I had never met anyone like him, and we became friends and began discussing our faith and challenging each other. Overwhelmed and confused by the evidence for Christianity, 
and the weakness of the Islamic case, I began seeking Allah for help. Or was he Jesus? I didn't know any longer. I needed to hear from God himself who he was. Thankfully, growing up in a Muslim community, I had seen others implore Allah for guidance. The way that Muslims expect to hear from God is through dreams and visions. And in the summer after graduating from Old Dominion, I began imploring God daily, tell me who you are. If you're Allah, show me how to believe in you. If you're Jesus, tell me. Whoever you are, I will follow you, no matter the cost. And by the end of my first year in medical school, God had given me a vision and three dreams, and a second of which was the most powerful. In it, I was standing at the threshold of a strikingly narrow door, watching people take their seats at a wedding feast. I desperately wanted to get in, but I was not able to enter because I had yet to accept my friend David's invitation to the wedding. I grieved at the thought of how accepting Jesus would make my parents feel. And then I read Matthew 10, 37. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. He says, accepting Christ was the most difficult thing I've ever done, but Jesus is the God of reversal and redemption. He writes now as a believer. He redeemed sinners to life by his death, and he redeemed a symbol of execution by repurposing it for salvation. What most non-Muslims don't understand about accepting Christ is that for Muslims, accepting Jesus does not just mean rejection by the community, but usually certain death. Jesus redeemed my suffering by making me rely upon him for my every moment, bending my heart toward him. And it was there in my pain that I knew him intimately. He reached me through investigations, dreams, and visions, and called me to prayer in my suffering. It was there that I found Jesus. To follow him, he says, is worth giving up everything. Nabil is now an author who writes books on Christian apologetics, but he was... In our world, with Islamic terrorism and all of these different things, maybe to us, a really bad sinner. Someone who hated Christianity and the claims of Christ. But you see, sometimes, just like this woman, the greatest sinners make the best saints. Let's pray. Father, now we... We recognize, O oh Lord, that all of our reading, all of our hearing of the word, of the truth, powerful stories of Jesus' wisdom.